The other pattern that I'm, I'm seeing is where you have more people focused on agile transformations at the organizational level and within the culture of the company, rather than let's do a pilot you know, digital lab of sorts with <laughs> Not to knock anybody who's doing that, but yes. so. I, I've heard some whispers that that might not be the way to go. <laughs> My guest today is Scrum Master Anna Lobo. She's on the cutting edge of guiding teams and individuals towards high performance and shares with us some of her best insights. We cover a lot in this episode, so be sure to open up the episode notes. Let's dive into episode 10 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. My guest today has been a product manager, scrum master, and various other titles. She's co-founded a nonprofit promoting education in Honduras. She's worked in Toronto for over a decade, and I have the pleasure of interviewing her today. Anna, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to jump right in. Uh, You've got a ton of experience that I want to talk to you about. But the first thing I have to ask, what is a scrum master? (laughs) Okay, let's let's start with a baseline. Um, What words come to your mind when you think of a scrum master? Uh, You're very good at something. Dare I say master. (laughs) Um, Okay. I didn't know what scrum was a few years ago. I had, no, I had no concept of it. The only methodology I understood was you have a product project manager that tells you what to do, and you do it. And it's a very simple perspective of the world, but that's not what Scrum is at all. Right, and that's why I actually deviated from not going through a project management route. So a Scrum master is mostly a coach, really, of a team. So the idea for a scrum master is to empower the team to do their best work in a way that is not um, that is not looking at them as a project manager would sometimes look at a team as resources only. So there is a deeper sense of connection with the team, and there is also a sense of protecting the team, which I had not seen a lot of under project management uh, when I was exposed to that. So for me, a Scrum Master, and I also have issue with the name, because (laughs) specifically of the word master. So that's something else that uh, I've brought up with with my own um, Scrum uh, Master team, let's say. And for me, a Scrum Master is someone who is able to look at a situation, assess the dynamic between the team, and find different points where they can make a difference so that the team can um, have a a better flow towards their work Mm -hmm. and each other. Right, so it sounds like it's a very personal level. It's connecting individuals and teams with each other more than it is managing a bunch of tasks on a whiteboard. Absolutely, and that's been the the hardest knowledge curve, I think, professionally, because before I had to get to know software, and software is there's a, a specific set of uh, of learnings that you have related to software and how it works and how people use it. But then when you pivot to human beings, it's endless possibilities and combinations for the dynamic between people and within an individual as well. 
Right. So you were very, it was more focused on the code and the, and the actual product, the thing that you were building before, whereas Scrum Master is very people focused. Exactly. So with, with, um, with my prior role as a business analyst or a product manager, it still was related to people in, in terms of how do we solve a problem? What's the problem that you're facing? How do you interact with software? What's your level of comfort with change and technology? Whereas now it's more about what is going on with the individuals so that the team can have a deeper connection with each other and with the organization and the work that we're doing. So the way I think about it is different Scrum Masters have different ways of applying what they do. And similar to um, other roles, there's a common foundation of practices um, that you can have as a toolkit of sorts. Um, However, once you're in a situation, you need to adapt and think on your feet. So when I think developers also have something similar when they go into a product or a code base and then somebody else has worked on it. Sometimes as a scrum master, you go into a situation and there might be some history there as well and you need to work through that as well. So personally, I found scrum master to be a lot harder than the product management side of things. Mm. Um, But it's the tools and the techniques that you learn help you in any sort of role that you do regardless whether it's technical or not technical role. Right. What, what makes it more challenging than a product manager role? Because you never get to know people to that level because people keep changing. And software, mm. in a way, it can keep changing, but the more you study it, the more you learn how much you can push it or how much it's going to uh, push back, for example. Whereas an individual... Um, I see an individual as as an evolving entity, and there are so many different factors. Um, Just to give you an example, um, you know, if one of our team team members had a really rough night and they didn't get enough sleep, and then the next day they're supposed to be doing like pair programming with someone, that can be completely different that day than it was two days before that. Mm. And so as a scrum master, it's your job to kind of get a sense of where, you know, what's going on outside of what's going on in the office that may be impacting how this person is coming in and, and being present for for the team, essentially. I see. Whereas product management would be more focused on more seeing the developers as like production machines, like they're a team of people that are going to produce code and produce features. Uh, not really. So product management to me, it's where you learn. Let's let's use an example. Let's say um, which app do you really like? My my notepad app. Your that notepad I use all the time. App. Okay, so then my job would be to learn the notepad app inside out, understand what are all the features, what's everything that it was built to do, what wasn't it built to do, but people sometimes use it in that way, and understand what the developers of the app intended the app to do, for example, and then study how you as a user interact with that app and what you're trying to solve and how can we enhance that app to meet your needs. And sometimes it's also interacting with the designers and figuring out, well, how can we make this better? And whereas as a Scrum master, Master, the app is irrelevant. Ah, I see. It's it's entirely people and team focused and process focused. Exactly. So I'm not yeah. trying to solve your problem with an app or the user's problem with an app or working with the designer to develop a better app. I am actually trying to understand how you approach any work that you might do. So then there has to be a, somebody else who's doing the project management side of things. So is Scrum Master this role that 
got split out from project management? Yes, so a Scrum Master inherited some areas from um, a project manager related to looking at the team as how are we going to meet some deadlines, for example, if there are deadlines related to partners or clients. Um, however, the product manager, the product owner, is the one who's now in charge of the timelines and the budget. So depending on the organization and the team, you'll also find that Scrum Masters and product owners have different responsibilities sometimes that deviate from the theory of Scrum. In the theory, though, the product owner is supposed to manage how much each of these features costs and how much do we expect to get from these features once they're out in the market and what's the roadmap in terms of the, the timeline. When can I go back to the customer and say, this is the cadence at which you're going to be receiving this? A Scrum Master would help feed that information using data from whichever software helps to capture the cadence of the team and remove blockers so that we can meet those timelines, for example, or that the team can keep flowing. So there's a division of roles in a way. In Scrum, ideally, you no longer have this sense of Gantt charts and all of these mm. other things that are historically... Right, those giant waterfall of Gantt bars. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, one of the things I understand about Agile is that it's, it's supposed to be much more iterative. You, you take bite-sized features or pieces, and each time you finish a collection of work, you have something deliverable to the customer. And it's not everything they ask for, but it's a percentage. Right. So what I love about Agile and why I sort of pivoted to Agile was because the customer is at the center of everything. So the idea is that you build something, but you immediately go back to the customer just to check. Are we on the right track? Did we hear you properly? Are we building what, what is actually meeting your, your need, right? Um, and you're able to then go through that process in a, in a cadence or in a frequency that, that actually makes sense for the customer to understand that you're building the right thing and that you're actually listening to what the customer is saying rather than grabbing a set of requirements, going back you know, behind the scenes, building it, and then X amount of time later coming back with, and it's done. This is exactly what you wanted, right? right? And also, because things change all the time, it's very important as well to have that frequent uh, sync with your customer because where they were two months ago may not be where they are today. And so what Agile does is that it allows you to be flexible and adapt to the changing needs and to start building it iteratively in a, in a way that you're delivering value and that the team feels motivated because they see how it's making a difference Interesting. So it's you actually want the teams to see the impact of their work earlier rather than building this 100% of this massive thing over nine months. Absolutely. In an ideal world, you'd actually have the the team who built it have as as um, as little layers as possible, I guess. Um, what do you mean by layers? People, or do you mean code? What are you talking so about? So people. So if you have um, the dev team able to interact with the customer 
part of that team where you can have a designer, where you can have a product owner, you can have a scrum master, you can have other stakeholders, but you don't need to go through five different levels of people in order to know right. what the customer is, um, is giving us feedback. So today, most organizations sadly have the customer so separated from the development team that it's really hard to figure out if what you're building is actually making a difference and how is it making a difference and how can we make it better? And, and even after you've built it, it's, well, what could we do to improve it? So how you, um, how, how I may be able to um, interpret some information from the customer might be different than how other people do. So when, as if I were a developer, for example, being able to build something and see how the customer interacts with what I'm building right. is so different than having, you know, a director tell a product manager to then tell me, hey, we need to improve this, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's very easy for me when I'm building something to focus on what I think is the most important thing. And then when it gets to the customer's hands, that's 1% of everything they do. And that broken telephone between so many layers is very easy to lose that how important is feature A versus feature B. Exactly. And, and when you see someone interacting with the software that you've built, then you're actually able to see, well, this thing that we built, it actually is making a huge difference or it isn't. So maybe we should focus more on this other thing that I've observed that they're trying to get done, but it's really tedious for them to, to do right. that. And that's why it's a, it's a, it's a conversation. And there's this sense as you, um, as a company progresses in its, um, in its intent to improve how teams work to become um, what's called a teal or organization. Teal, the color. Yeah. So essentially, um, if you if you go back to reinventing organizations by Frederick Laloux, and there's a lot of uh, Michael Spade has also written about it, and what that is. Um, it talks about teal organizations being uh, more fluid in their roles. So it's not where everybody has a title. And because you're, you know, because I'm in this box, this is the only thing that I'm supposed to be concerned with. Right. So, so when you, when an, organi an organization gets to that level, what you encounter is a developer may be able to ask questions that normally would fall under a product owner role. And a product owner is able to ask questions about things as well. That, so there's not a sense of this is your title or this is my title. This is your shoebox. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, so you, we, is that a Scrum methodology that you want that overlap? Is that part of Scrum or is that just part of an effective organization? So Scrum itself, I believe, should also be iterative. It should evolve, right? Mm. So what we have today is you have the roles and you have the sense of these are the different responsibilities under each of the roles. However, once you apply it, you find that there's a lot of overlap between different roles, right? So having the conversation, it shouldn't just be a scrum master having the conversation with the dev team and then have the product owner be part of that. Everybody as human beings should be able to know, okay, so where are we headed? Why, what are we building? Why are we building it? And that shouldn't mm -hmm. rest only with certain people within that team. Gotcha. Yeah. What's the most challenging part of being agile scrum? The most challenging part, I would say, is getting customer feedback. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> it's, Interfacing with the customer. It's so challenging because a lot of people's roles depends 
on them being responsible for that interaction. So for example, sometimes if uh, people's job as a relationship manager, for example, right? Your job is to talk to the partner and to make sure... Right, you're that face, you're the point of contact. Exactly. So if that's your job, then you have to be very confident and flexible to then have that open relationship with the developer to say, hey, I've spoken with the partner and this is what's going on. So you have so many other layers in between that to me, the most challenging part of Agile is that customer feedback, that customer voice. And there are so many roles today whose existence depends on being the representative of the customer. Being the only, the one and only. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if we're able to be more open towards um, having that open communication with the team and across different levels and layers, then the product would benefit from that because you'd build a much better product because the people who are building the product have access to the information that the customer has given them. Even better would be if you could see the end user, not just the client that you're building it for. But right. Not just something you throw over the fence, but something you work with them with and sit and Exactly. And yeah. So what normally you would associate with, you know, oh, we need to carry out user interviews and have user testing and such things that come with, you know, as a, as a designer, right? But it'd be great if they also shared those videos with the developers, just like, you know, some insights, right? And so the idea is how do you get an organization to be more flat, right? To say, this is the information. How, how do we share this information with each other so that we build a stronger product and have a happier customer, where the goal from every single team is that, but not in a silo. Right. It sounds like communication is at the center of all of this. Exactly. And that is, I think, regardless of your role, the way that we communicate with each other is incredibly important in in how we do our job. And communication is two ways. It's not just me saying something. That's right. But me being able to listen as well. And that's the piece that's often missing in communication, where it's not just about, well, how well can I verbalize my point and how can I persuade people or influence or what should I say or not say, but more about, well, what is the other person trying to say that they may not be able to say? That's right. Often helping them find their words or helping them articulate that they're frustrated at this one corner of your software or the process, whatever, and they're having a hard time speaking to the overarching problem, which might be the design of something uh, is, is wrong or it's off. And they've been doing it enough so much and so long that maybe they, they can't explain it. Exactly. And I've also found there's um, a cultural aspect to to it as well, where I found here, for example, in, in Toronto, I have to catch the off comment, not the main comment, because sometimes people have, we have, um, and this is a, a global thing, an issue with conflict, for example. We want Just, to avoid conflict. We want to avoid yeah. conflict, exactly. And so sometimes we'll say something like a side comment when that should have been the main comment. If you have, you know, if I have an issue with something, usually what I found is, um, you know, in the interactions where I notice that a client actually may have an issue with something is that they'll say, oh, this is great. You know, I really appreciate the work that you put into this. 
la 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 and then at some point they're like well you know and i think we can fix this later right right and it's like that that side comment that like you know just something to think about for later right because they don't want to face that sort of issue like this is why this is important to us and this is why when it's built this way it won't really work for us and sometimes that conversation mm. doesn't happen until everything is done and you're ready to release something and then the the, the client realizes oh yeah. so it's actually going to be released this way and so culturally some companies or or some countries even have an easier way of coming up with issues and working through them rather than let's be nice 99% of the time and I'll give you 1% where I'm not nice but that right. 1% is the is the critical is like, the deal breaker yeah. before we go to production so <laughs> yeah I've seen that a lot in industry so I can appreciate what you're saying I I almost wonder if that's a very Canadian thing. I'm not sure if that's a problem around the world. It's definitely a problem here. Yeah. I so I worked in Cyprus and I I worked in the US a bit and and I worked in Honduras as well and and uh-huh. I've noticed even working here when we work with uh, people from Latin America it's a very different interaction for example than it would be with hmm. people who've been working in Canada for a while and I'm just I can just speak to Toronto actually because I haven't worked outside of of Toronto but I've noticed it's where I have to learn to pay so close attention to um conversation that was said almost in a whisper as a side comment right. and the body language as well so one thing that I find really great about where we work today is that the teams are all co-located So because everybody's here, then it's very easy for people to stand up, talk to each other and try to work things out remotely with different culture. You're adding so many different layers right. that hinder the communication or make it even more challenging than it already is when you're face to face with somebody and you speak the same language and you're able to see each other and see the non-verbal cues as well. Right, the communication even over the phone, you lose a ton. where you it's hard to perceive exactly if the person does like it or doesn't like it it is good or it, it missing something. So you have work experience here in Toronto and also back in Honduras where mm-hmm. you're from. What are the big cultural differences? Like was there anything that really surprised you when you came here? So when I came here, I actually came here from from Cyprus. I was transferred here from Cyprus and the Mediterranean culture is very similar to the Latin American culture. So what I found very surprising here is there is a sense of this is the the workplace and this is where we um do work and then once I'm done with work I have my other life which has nothing to do mm. with my work life. That separation of concerns that Exactly. Yeah. Uh whereas the uh in in Cyprus at least there was the sense of this is work but as a human being as a person that i work with do you want to come and you know join us for easter celebration for example as mm. as a foreigner let's say right to get to know our culture for example right or to be more uh, at home let's say right and when i first arrived to toronto that wasn't really a thing right <laughs> so <laughs> So that was something that I had to kind of uh get past, you know, in in terms of how how do you bridge that gap where you can establish relationships with people um uh, professionally but then also outside of the workplace in a in a way 
that um, actually enhances how you how you work together because you get to see a different side of that individual. So as a scrum master, how I do my job, I try to create different activities that show different sides of each of us because that helps us to bond as well. Mm. If we just focus on, okay, what's the work that we need to do? Who's doing it? And you know, the typical retro format, right. right? You don't get to see the other sides of the individual and you don't get to see people in a different way that, you know, would, would help each of us learn more about each other, Would help, which then helps us work better together. Hmm. The more that we know about each other, the more we work better. I, I know that personally. If, I, if I'm friends with somebody outside of work, I always get along with them better inside of work. And it's easier to understand and almost like make space for I know you've had a great day. I know you've had a bad day yesterday, the weekend, whatever. Uh, I get it, and I'll pick up a little bit, or I'll, I know I can lean on you a little bit if I need to. And I find that dynamic is more difficult if I don't know the person very well. Right. I always feel like I, I have no business leaning on this person. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And even, you know, it's, it's not to say, you know, go out and make sure that you have personal relationships with everybody you work with, but, you know, the, this thing that, that you do, for example, like having a coffee, right? Not related to right. work, but just to kind of let's go and have a coffee and have a, a conversation outside of our desks, right? And and that builds the relationships, right? So it's it's going beyond what a regular interaction would be to to try to get to know the human being behind the role, for example. Right. Yeah. I, you touched on it. You, you know, I'm a big proponent of going for coffee, interrupting <laughs> yes. my workday and yeah. getting everybody off their desks and going for coffee as a team. Yeah. Especially between like two and three o'clock, ideally. Mm-hmm. I find it helps me hugely, not only to get to know other individuals, but to have a mental break. Sometimes I just need to have a little bit of exercise to walk around and to think about something that has nothing to do with solving a puzzle or a structure. Right. It kind of resets that part of my brain, I find. Right. Yeah, yeah it, it falls into the uh, work smarter, not harder theme. Yes, oh, which I cannot agree <laughs> with more. Yes. Like many people think that oftentimes you'll see around the world another headline posted, uh, X country is trying to cut day, a week or two of vacation because their GDP is falling. They want their people to be more productive. Well, it's very tempting and it almost seems intuitive that that should be how it works. But there's some strong data to show that more hours doesn't equal more productivity. Right. And an article posted by Mark Marin a little while ago that I'll link in the episode notes uh, made a really strong case for there's certain kinds of work, especially creative or cognitive work, where you pass a point of negative returns where you're actually working against yourself the more hours you put in absolutely there's this sense also uh carl newport wrote this book called uh, deep work and what he talks about is how do you shut everything off for a few hours so that you're able to focus on the work that you need to do and instead of having this multitasking context switching six hour trying to get an hour worth of work done you actually have an hour of focused work and then the rest can be something else, for example. But the idea is how do you, you know, kind of focus on one thing that can then help you to do the best possible work that you can during that time because you're focused on that one thing. Right. And it's exponentially more effective Absolutely. versus trying to context switch all day. Yeah. And there's all these myths, right? Like, the, you know, if I work eight or 10 hours a day, I'm showing that I'm, you know, a really committed employee where whereas somebody would actually question that and say, well, you know, 
what can we do to make sure that you're not working eight or 10 hours a day? Is it the context switching? Is it you know the multiple projects? Is it all of these interruptions? Is it the, the space itself, right? Because that's actually like a flag of like, we're doing something wrong. If you're working more than eight hours? If you're, yeah, if you're working eight to 10 hours a day, it's not, it's not a, a flag of, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working uh, really hard on this because you shouldn't be working really hard for eight or 10 hours. It's where right. there's something wrong with that picture because as you said, you, you burn out after a few hours, which means the work that you're doing is not really the best possible work right. because you're already, it's not humanly possible to be fully engaged and fully committed to one thing for eight right. or 10 hours. I, absolutely not. Yeah. Especially cognitive work. Like it's different if you need to carry... 600 boxes from here to there yes the amount of time is roughly equal to the amount of work produced but if we're figuring out a puzzle we're trying to find the best solution for something and we've got a hundred different options we have to narrow down and figure out what's the best one i can't do that for eight hours in a row right i'm and i've i've seen evidence of this in my past for example i sometimes i think i sat down for three hours i wrote some great code you know i sacrificed a little sleep but that whole section is done now. And I'll wake up in the morning and look at it and be like, oh my goodness, I missed something so obvious. This should have taken me just 10 minutes instead of three hours. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all of these brain uh, techniques and different ideas that, that in research that, that has come from that uh, around switching activities, around doing something completely different, around taking a step back and just mulling it over or completely forgetting about it and then you'll actually get the answer to something because you haven't thought about it for two or three days for example or because you had you know three consecutive nights of good sleep for example and then you allowed your brain to recover and and come up with something right or the whole idea of innovation as you know not surrounding yourself with with the same ideas but trying to find how can you apply something from a completely different field to what you're doing that helps you um in what you're trying to accomplish and and that i think is really fascinating how you can actually get Mm. to the idea of what's common across different fields in terms of how they tackle problems that maybe we haven't thought about on you know on our own side and being exposed to that and kind of pushing yourself past your comfort zone to keep learning and to keep finding new ways of doing things and of tackling issues. Right. So being able to gather that perspective of commonalities of problem solving, is that something that a scrum master would be able to focus on, whereas a project manager would probably never get to focus on that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned if project managers are going to listen to this because Project managers also, there's very different uh, approaches that each project manager has. I know personally, as a Scrum Master, one of the things that I'm doing is, uh, for example, researching more about systematic innovation thinking. So what, you know, what are some of the techniques that we can use? And this was actually used for um, creating patents. So when innovators would uh, submit a patent for something that they created, then somebody actually went in and researched all the different ways that they um, had had come to that sort of creative solution. And so my job as a Scrum Master is how can I leverage tools or techniques that other people have have used to identify, well, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? And how, how much time are we spending making sure that we understand the problem fully? So instead of just asking the 
the, the question, my job is to figure out what are the tools or techniques that I can put around this question that can help us come with different insights. And how do I get different voices in the room to speak up so that it's not the loudest voice that gets to give the opinion, but right. everybody. And so my job is to find what are the different tools and techniques that I can find to make sure that we have all of the insights that we can from this group voiced and listened to as well because when you listen to, to an insight you also get triggered into well maybe there's a different way of thinking about this and what about right. this and so my job is more around how do i provide a structure for the team to have a conversation with each other and to tackle a question in a way that can then make sure that everybody gets a vote or a say Right. It's like, if I can draw a metaphor, it's you're carrying these massive toolboxes with all these different approaches and techniques to get everybody on a team participating. And I, I've had it happen many times where I, ha I have a certain idea of the way that the solution is going to go, a solution. And somebody then tells me a different approach. And it's, it's not the right idea, but it's, it's coming at it from an entirely different angle that I didn't think about. And then that triggers me to think, oh my goodness, I can take a bit of that and make this solution way better than what I was originally thinking. Right. So, mm -hmm. What kind of tools and what kind of techniques have you learned over the years? And what have you found to be most effective? Like, do you have any very interesting ones you want to share? Sure. So one of the ones that I started researching recently uh, is liberating structures. So liberating structures. What does that mean? <laughs> so I'm still a newbie, so I'm still learning about it. Uh, my understanding of it so far is where... How, how do you get everybody in the room to interact with each other? So I don't know if you've noticed, usually when you go to meetings, when you go to meetups, when you go to different events that have, let's say, more than four people, it's it usually comes down to a couple of people talking to each other. Yes. And then you leave, <laughs> and then you've actually missed out on the... Um, there's this sense, I think, of the, the wisdom of a crowd, in a way, where... A lot of people, when you put um, kind of a, a, a situation, if they are able to collaborate, then the it's exponential in terms of the number of ideas that you can come up with, rather than a pair, for example, right? right? So liberating structure sort of says, well, what are the different activities that we can have around uh, different people interacting with each other so that then we can have, when, when you're facilitating a discussion, you have this sense of a convergent, and then, so di divergent or di divergent, divergent and convergent. Yes, okay. divergent and convergent. And the idea is where you have as many ideas as possible or as many interactions as possible, but then you bring it back to what are the main ones that we can actually action or that are feasible or that we can mm -hmm. think about. And so one of the things that I found a, a lot of value in is having, for example, PowerPoints. I hate PowerPoint. <laughs> Whenever I go to a meeting and somebody has a PowerPoint, I know it's not the you know it's not going to be a very productive meeting because what happens when you have slides? You have one person who's doing all the talking. Right, they monopolize the room. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and hopefully they've got some really well articulated things to put forward. But that's not always the case. <laughs> yes, and how are you engaging with people? And even 
even now now it's even harder to grab people's attention when everybody has a cell phone they have so many different apps and notifications so there's there's all of these different techniques in terms or things to think about when you have a group of people in a room related to attention span related to the activities that you want to make sure engage people keep sort of a uh, a cadence around change because there is you know what, what do you mean by that so I don't know if you've noticed, but usually I have one question and then I have it timed. And then we have another question and then we have it timed. Or we switch the activities or we have a break. Right. So the way your brain works and the way your attention works, I think it's, I'm, I might be wrong, it's like seven seconds or 11 seconds before your attention is grabbed by something else if you're not deeply engaged in something. So if it's hmm. a slide, you read it and then you're done. No matter what the person says, at that point your attention That's right. Is <laughs> oh my god. I do that a hundred percent of the time. Yes. So training from the back of the room is another um concept that I learned about recently and that one is called training from the back of the room because it's not somebody at the front of the room saying and this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing this and let me talk about something but you're at the back of the room and you present the the group with different questions or different um, supplies or different it's not props it's like accessories let's say so where you would have the the post-its and the and the markers and you would have everything set up so that they actually do the work themselves based on a simple set of instructions and the the gotcha. yeah and is this a, is this for project management where does it, this apply it could be for anything so when when you for example did the the python right um training. The, the python course that we did yeah, yeah exactly right so where where you had people work through different problems and yes there was somebody at the front of the room but then you had a a lot of people at the back of the room helping people as mm, well that's right, right. For context to our listeners, uh, a couple of months ago, we ran a programming for beginners course here, and we had many, many more volunteers moving around the room, helping people through their individual problems. So how much time did we spend having somebody at the front of the room speak? It was maybe a quarter of the time, maybe less. Yeah, maybe less, yeah. And, And I found that so helpful because they not only, you know, were at the back of the room, but they would also sit down next to you and they would try to work through what it is that you were working through and, and have you talk about, well, what's your train of thought? And that's something else that as a scrum master, I've found it's, it's really one of the hardest things is how to ask the right questions. And there's this other podcast that maybe you, you can put in your notes. It's called uh, Deep L- Listening. Deep Listening? Deep li- yeah, Deep Listening. And it's, um, it, it talks about so many different techniques as a, as a journalist or as a negotiator, so many different perspectives on how to be better at listening. And one of the things that they mention in one of the podcasts is how to ask a question seven words or less. And how do you ask a question without it being a leading question? Right. Where you, it's a more open-ended question. It's not dragging them forward. Right. Exactly. And I found in, um, in terms of other techniques that are really helpful is to give people the space to, to talk and to feel listened to. I found in many of the conferences that I've been to when the activities are related to mindfulness or to listening, one of the most impactful ones that I can recall right now is where you were asked to speak about something for five minutes in a pair 
And after two minutes, you start to go a bit crazy because (laughs) (laughs) it's very rare that you're able to talk for more than two minutes without getting interrupted. Ah. Extremely rare. So for, you know, for people listening at home, just as a quick exercise, like put a timer for five minutes. See if you can listen to this podcast for five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, find somebody in your house that you can sit down with for five minutes, essentially. And then the the idea is ask an open-ended question and do not react, do not give a comment, do not give feedback. And just absorb. Just absorb. And you'll start to notice how after two minutes, the, maybe even less, the other person is waiting for you to say <laughs> something. <laughs> and that's the hardest part when you, you know you want to say something, but you want to give yourself that, that time for the other person to then dig deeper and mm. talk more about that subject. And I think those last two minutes are actually the most important and valuable ones because they've gone beyond, well, how are you going to react to that to let me explore further how I feel about this. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting exercise. Right. It's not, at that point, it's not about reacting. It's about understanding that person's mindset. Exactly. Yeah. How did you get into all this? How did you, how did you find this? So I found this one in Germany, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Did you work there as well? Are you a world traveler I'm not aware of? (laughs) Uh, It's sort of how things are connected. So when I I was on this product management road, and then I was, you know, kind of very interested in how can we see um, Scrum from different perspectives? So one of the things, and, and this you can apply it in, in, in any job, you become, as a developer, if I were a developer, I'd be a better developer if I could interact with the, with the, with the customer. And Thank so, no, yeah. And so as, as a product owner, my mindset was I could become a, a better product owner if I understand Scrum from a different perspective. And so I pivoted to Scrum Master. And when I pivoted to Scrum Master, it it was a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and so I became very interested in learning more about it. And I was very lucky that we worked with, with Alan Gian here. And he's very into gamification and how do we have more activity-based learning as well. And so there's this conference called, um, it's not a conference, it's more of an open space called Play for Agile. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've seen the logo around, yeah. Yeah, and so what they do is they they build games or activities for teams to learn more about Agile, Scrum, Kanban, using Lego, using different props, whatever it is essentially, using the way that you think. And so when, when I um, learned about that one, they were inspired by the one in Germany, Play for Agile in Germany. Uh-huh. That's yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. And then in Germany, it was fascinating because you're able to see uh, how people from different countries look at Scrum and, and Agile and how they apply Kanban as well or XP. And, and you're exposed to so many different perspectives. And it, what I loved about it was that it was, it was like Google but with people. You know, where I would have a question about systematic innovation thinking and I could just ask somebody in the room and they'd be like, yes, I've been reading about it and I've actually tried this out and this mm-hmm. and this and this. And if you're interested, then go and look at this other books, for example, rather than typing it into Google, 
you know, systematic innovation thinking, I can actually interact with another human being who's applied it and who then can be a contact for me to go on my sort of learning journey, right? Right, right. Uh, And you have that trustworthiness of like, they're excited, so they've probably done this and they enjoy it. Yeah. Versus like, if you Google something, you don't know how much money has led to that being the top result or anything like that. Exactly. And and then from that conference uh, or open space as well, then they told me about MindCamp, which is here in Canada, which I'd never even heard about. What is MindCamp? I've <laughs> so never heard of that either. MindCamp is about innovation and creativity from different thought leaders and different um, speakers and practitioners who across different fields. So it doesn't even have to be technology which is an incredible opportunity where people from all all over the world come to like an hour from Toronto, seriously, to talk about innovation, creativity from different perspectives, different backgrounds. Hmm. And so you're able to learn so much more because you're exposed to a group of people that you normally wouldn't as part of your day to day. Right. Yeah. Did you, have you attended this or how did you this hear about this? This is in August. It's coming up. It's coming up in August. Okay. Yeah. And if you Google MindCamp, Google again. Yeah. <laughs> MindCamp. Is it mind personal or mind is in my brain? As in your brain. Mind okay. as in your brain. Yeah. So. Okay. I'll definitely link that in the show notes. Yeah, and it's uh, it's that sort of where everything's connected, where you go somewhere and you're able to interact with people because this was um, three three days of interacting with people. And so you're able to gain so much more insights than going to a meetup for an hour and a half, for example, right? So it's how do you expose yourself to the situations where you're able to have deeper conversations with individuals so that then you can connect that to the next level of where you want to go with your career or where you want to go professionally or even personally. Yeah, and just have those different perspectives. Somebody who's an artist will have a totally different view of the world than me, who's a software dev, and I have very little time talking with somebody about that. Yeah, and that ties back into the diversity theme as well, right? How do you get exposed to people across different roles, different mindsets, different backgrounds, different levels of experience that can that can sort of guide you in a different way of looking at what, what you do? Fascinating. <laughs> I do want to ask you, mm-hmm. you've, you've used a lot of words that I don't know here, some of which I do, some of which I don't. <laughs> okay. um, but Scrum and Kanban and Agile and XP and what are, what are some of these things? <laughs> so XP comes from, um, is the acronym for extreme programming. Okay. okay. I remember a phase of life where that was a thing. Yes. So XP, along with other set of dev practices, was a precursor to Agile as a term. Uh-huh. So when we talk about Agile, it originated from different software engineers coming together, trying to find a better way to build software. And they came up with the Agile Manifesto as as a way for us to build software, right? And so from that, then you have different... Um, practices is not the right word, but let's just Approaches, go... Approaches, maybe? Sure, approaches to build software. One would be Scrum, which is related to the the rugby term of a Scrum, right? Mm. Where people come together and they talk about what you know what they're building. So twenty years ago, no one had ever heard of extreme programming or Scrum. Like none of that existed. Extreme program, I think, did. Yes. So there were different terms twenty years ago. However, it's. It's sort of defining 
putting a new label on something that did exist. Gotcha. So now we had a name for this thing. Exactly. And now there was this sense of, okay, so it's agile. And the word is very catchy as well, agile. Whereas Scrum might not be so catchy, but it's still, it's still under that umbrella of Scrum, Kanban. And you might even have different practices or approaches that fall under agile that are not labeled as such. Mm. One thing to be wary of, though, is when you mix and match or when you say you're doing Scrum, but you're not doing retros, for example. Right. So there's a, another term called Scrum butt, which is <laughs> you're saying it's Scrum, but... <laughs> but we skip something. Yes. So, so that is another thing to, to be wary of, where if you're doing waterfall, there's another one called Scrum fall. Scrumful? Scrum Scrum fall. Fall. Yeah. Okay. So there's different terms around it where when you're when you're saying you adopt and, and that's why you actually start to see something and Michael Sahoda is is kind of leading one of the leaders in this is the agile mindset, the agile culture from an organizational perspective. So it's not about one team doing scrum and now the organization is agile. Right. Right. It's a mindset, right? Everybody's got to be on, on board. Exactly. And so what you see with, with Agile, with Scrum, and with Kanban, it's not just, it can, it can also be applied outside of technology. There's personal Kanban. If you look it up, it's a thing. <laughs> I can, my calendar can be Kanban? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Where you can have uh, so many different activities that are part of your personal life or non-technology uh, teams within a company that can uh, that can um, help and and benefit their organization as a whole. When we talk about the agile mindset as well, where we're open to change and we're open to listening to our customer and we're open to adapting where we're headed and we're open to improving ourselves. There's a sense of continuous improvement. And let's question: Well, why are we doing things this way is there a different way that we could do this let's experiment let's try a different thing and that is something that is contained within the culture of the organization it's not supposed to be right contained it's got, within it's not within just these meetings exactly and there's and there's a sense of, of quarantine in a way that you get <laughs> from some companies when when they're like oh yeah scrum that's what those guys in the you know the sixth floor are doing for example right rather than well what can we leverage or apply from scrum or kanban as part of the finance team for example so there's so many different so much potential for Scrum and Kanban outside of just the dev team or technology. Yeah. D have many organizations adopted this or has this been slow and wh why do you think it has been? Change is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so it has been slow. I think there's a bit more awareness now. Um, there's, there's a lot of different things that are happening and I know only of a few, but for example, have you heard of the software craftsmanship conferences? Uh, I, no, I didn't know that was a conference. Yeah, so one of the things that you're starting to notice, that I've started to notice, is that Scrum has separated into this sort of, oh, it's for, you know, Scrum masters and product owners, and they're not really talking about any technical stuff when you have, like, a Scrum gathering, for example. So if you hear Scrum gathering, 
as a dev, you'd probably think twice before attending that. Then right. That doesn't sound like me. Exactly. Where the origin of Scrum was within the dev community. It wasn't within the product owners or the Scrum masters. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll send you a link of another uh, video from one of the, I think it was, he was one of the people who, who started, um, was part of the initial Agile Manifesto group, for example. And essentially what's, what's happening is that Scrum has, has been sort of seen as not for devs, for example, in terms of a Scrum gathering would not be interesting for a group of developers, for example. And so now you have this software craftsmanship conferences that are very technical, but they still have some aspects that are not technical. And that is one of the patterns that you're seeing where there is actually a separation or a divide within the Scrum community, let's say, where devs are doing one thing in terms of their own set of gatherings, and then you have product owners doing their own thing, and you have Scrum masters doing their own thing. And so that's that's one of the things, for example. Um, another one would be, sorry, do you have a question? Mm-hmm. So does this mean that everybody's coming to the table with their own perception of what should be the best way? Is that what the outcome of those separate conferences are? Separate concepts? No, the, the outcome of those are what's of interest to me related to Scrum. So where mob programming, pair programming would be a topic under a dev conference related to Scrum. It might not be under a Scrum right. conference related to different topics like um, team building or team bonding or things like that, right? So rather than have one conference, and maybe there is... Um, in a conference that actually caters to the different um, audience that that are part of a scrum team right so so that's one of the patterns that that you see there there's a, a divide that you know hopefully we can we can bridge but yes this were not concepts that people had considered let's say 20 years ago but now that they're becoming more and more part of our uh, vocabulary and how projects are are tackled let's say right it's not the magic pill that's going to solve any sort of problem with a team and delivering software and that's how it's been um, advertised as, right. let's say. If you go agile, your team will be more efficient. You will ship faster. Yeah, and it's sort of saying, just start doing the ceremonies, and then everything will be okay, and magic will happen. And it doesn't right. really work that way. So it's not to say that, you know, waterfall projects failed all the time, because that's... and. So the, the more you dig into how the different approaches started, the more you see that there's a lot of um, similar items um, among them, like have a conversation with, with, with the team that's building the, the software. It doesn't matter what you call it, you know, waterfall or scrum or Kanban. Having that conversation as human beings should, is part of any sort of approach that you decide to take. So when you look at successful projects, for example, it's, it's more about how did the people relate to each other and how were they able to figure out what it was that needed to get done to solve the, the actual problem and, and having that communication going, going back to that, right? So that you can feel like you're moving together towards a common goal rather than right. oh we we missed those requirements because we assumed something something or we missed that because we didn't get you know back to the customer or the customer didn't get back to us and so there's right so successful a successful project is more about inter-team dynamics and 
within the team and outside the team, then it is about this guy's an expert at this. He's an expert project manager. He's an expert front-end developer. Exactly. So the the more you look into it, the more you see that it's about having having people do their best possible work, providing them with the tools that they need in order to succeed so that they know what it, what is the meaning of what I'm doing, what's the motivation of why I'm building this, what problem am I trying to solve, and how can I get access to the information and then the tools that I need to get this done, and how do I get feedback on what I'm doing, and how do I continuously improve on that, right? So it doesn't matter right. what do you call it, a scrum master is doing it, a product owner is doing it, a dev is doing it, or we're doing agile, or we're doing scrum, Kanban, whatever it is, waterfall. At, at the end of the day, there's some basic concepts around how do we build the team that we need in order to deliver something, knowing why we're delivering it and the impact it's having and how we can do better or keep right. improving. So what about if it's possible to do it in waterfall and it's possible to do it in scrum and agile and these, what makes it more likely that waterfall will fail where scrum might succeed it's the thing that is most likely to succeed in any project that you do is to have the customer feedback so what helps you the i would say the most critical success factor would be having that customer feedback and scrum you're saying builds that in more naturally than waterfall yes which you know, I was a business analyst working with Waterfall Projects uh, many, many moons ago, and I would still go to the customer. I would still go to the operational team working with the software to make sure that we were we were mm. on the right track. So that was Waterfall, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's where the you know you kind of have to use your common sense too, right? Where if you're building something and you want to you know know if you're building the right thing, and you're lucky enough that you're working with an internal team, then just walk over and say, hey, <laughs> put it in front of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the critical piece is to be able to have that openness and that access and to be part of an organization or a team that that is open to that. Right. And not have the, oh, how dare you go to the customer right. and look, I'm the manager here. I tell you yes, how to do it. Exactly. Right. right. And then it becomes a cultural thing. And that's why um, the other pattern that I'm, I'm seeing is where you have more people focused on agile transformations at the organizational level and at, within the culture of the company rather than let's do a pilot you know, digital lab of sorts with <laughs> Scrum. Not to knock anybody who's doing that, but yes. so. I, I've heard some whispers that that might not be the way to go. <laughs> right. So when you when you put it as, as an experiment over there and let's see if it works and then maybe we'll start to roll it out, it's... It's not as easy as just switching the names of the different individuals. Right. It's a it's a mindset thing. It's you know there's a learning curve associated with it. There's common sense as well associated with it, and then there's that willingness to to give up some of what you know your fears may be related to tackling something new and. Not everybody wants to get negative negative feedback or constructive criticism right. related to what you're building as well, right? So that's also something else that it sort of brings that um, more towards the, the the forefront of being vulnerable every week or every two weeks to show something that you've been working on and then 
hear that, right? Right, and somebody might say, you missed the mark. This is not what we wanted. Right. And it's putting, it sounds like I would have to put my ego on the table every other week whenever we have these ceremonies. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so that that is also a challenge, right? Because it's very difficult to have that. But as a, as a team, it's how do you create that sort of safe space to have that feedback and not feel personally attacked, for example. Right. Right? And, and that's where being open and being vulnerable is, is so much a part of Agile and what I love about Agile because it's saying, I want to understand as a customer what you're facing and how we can make it better. And I want you to tell me once I've tried to tackle that, did I do a good job with it? Right. Could, could I do something differently? What was good about it? What wasn't good about it? So that I, you can have an appreciation. I can get an appreciation. Absolutely. And then as an individual who's part of a team, when we have a retros, that's another thing that we have to look at right well how are we doing working together independent of what we build how is our communication and how did we work this week and what can we do better what can we keep doing for example and how do we dig deeper into that to get something that actually improves how we work and you can even take that home because being a better communicator at work means you're also being a better communicator at, right at, at, well that's at that's a huge that's an individual thing that has nothing that isn't specific you're, you're bad communicator when you're working on this project it's probably who you are exactly yeah yeah so that's what's really rewarding about being a scrum master where you can help figure out different ways in which people can actually be better human beings whether it's here or out there whereas as a product manager it's all related to the software that you're building and the problem that you're solving related to that but I have no um, no skin in the game, let's say, and how will I do my job based on how you know we help each other to communicate better with each other, for example. Right. One's very product or thing-centric. One's very people-centric. Yes, absolutely. Got it. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you didn't come out of school, you weren't born and raised thinking you were going to be a scrum master. <laughs> you actually went to school and studied agriculture. Yes. <laughs> I uh, I went to school to study agricultural economics because from a Latin American country, usually when you have a family business, I don't know if this is a global thing, it might be, but when you have a family business, you go to school to study something that's going to help you grow that business. And so that's that's our family business back home. And I did that. But I've always loved computers. And mm. that's something that's been a common thread. At the time where I was, I would have never considered asking my parents, can I be a, a computer software engineer? <laughs> because they would have been, you know, why? What would you do with that? <laughs> So there was very much this more traditional approach of, okay, so this is what work we have and this is where you will go to go study and then come back and help us grow it further. So then I kind of went on a different path and I moved to Cyprus and I worked there uh, for a software company for a few years and I just, yeah, I really loved software and being able to not necessarily build it, but understand how it's built from the customer's perspective or from the user's perspective, and then being able to 
bridge that gap between, well, what are you trying to do and how is the software helping or hindering <laughs> what right. you're trying to Oftentimes, do? Oftentimes, yes. <laughs> started helping and then ended up hindering. Exactly. Yeah. And how do we, you know, bring out sort of the the best in, in us to say, well, I really want to solve this problem and it wasn't my intent to build something that was going to make your life more complicated. Or I have the best intent, which has been my experience with most software teams. I have the best intent of solving this problem. I just need to understand what problem I'm solving in order to work on a solution. And oftentimes what I've found, most business people have a tendency to say, this is a problem. This is how I want you to fix it. Right. (laughs) Rather than leverage our innate problem-solving tendencies to say this is my problem how can you help me solve it right which is a totally different interaction (laughs) it's authoritative versus listening exactly and it's i understand this better than you so go do it (laughs) you touched on a key point that i think is fascinating that oftentimes people have an opinion on how they think something should be solved but it's often way off the mark people often don't know what they want and a good example is in the beginning, people were screaming that my commute is way too long hundreds of years ago. I want faster horses. Mm-hmm. And then someone developed the automobile, and I'm sure the first customer they put it in front was, did you even hear what I said? Right, <laughs> right, yes. And so there's, there's two different ways of, of looking at that, too. One is where in order to build that automobile, for example, you had to take a step back and assess, well, what are we actually trying? That's right. What is the problem? Exactly. Right. And what's the outcome that we're looking for getting from point A to point B, for example. Right. And what are the different ways that we can do that? Right. And so when you when you read the um, the articles on, on Musk, for example, and, and you learn about the first elements and you research into that and then you real and then I I when I did that, I realized that there were so many things that we just do because that's the way they've been done or we apply because everybody has applied it yes. in this way. But then I learned, well, what if I take a step back and say, how can we do this differently, right? And so, yes, there is a sense that people don't really know what they want because otherwise they would just want a faster horse, for example. However, I am mindful of the fact that we need to understand people's pain points. So whether it's a horse or a car, the pain point uh, is very important to understand how to make sure that that pain point is taken care of. And then when you get into systems thinking, which is a whole other thing that talks about, well, how is this going to have an impact on another entity that's part of this system? There are no, um, so everything has a consequence of some sort. The whole point of unintended consequences, for example, right? Or knock-on effects. So where, where you essentially have the best of intentions to solve a problem, but you create a problem somewhere else. Right, down the road that you didn't anticipate the first time. Yes, and it could be a totally different team on something that's related to what you're doing, but they're not even using your software. But your software, or the software that you're that we're, we're, we're building, is somehow causing another team to have a much more complex process, for example. And so when we talk about systems thinking and how we 
care about what the customer is saying and how we're trying to solve a problem, we also have to take a step back and look at, well, how is this customer part of a wider sort of system? And the solution that I'm thinking about, how can I make sure that it's not making things more complicated for other parties? And if it is, is it at least something that we can manage our ex expectations and maybe have another conversation with them around the opportunities to integrate and to improve things across the organization and not just within one team under right. one department. This is looking at a bigger picture of things. Exactly. Yeah. So so when when we have the opportunity to work in a in a company where you have the option of talking to people from different teams and understanding how what you're doing has an impact on another team, it's extremely valuable. And sometimes you lose that when you just get, you know, a list of requirements and go build it. It's like Yeah. So so that's pretty important as well when you take a more holistic view of what what we're building, why we're building it, how is it going to impact the wider um, organization. You mentioned something early on that I want to come back to. You mentioned protecting or defending the team. What's that concept? What's that all about? So it's it's protecting the team. So protecting the team would be where... If we, just to give you an example, if we have a story and then the product owner says, oh, that story, can we add this to that story, for example? There's different sense of protecting. One is protecting the team from external or other um, parties, such as, oh, this is really important and we need to inject it into the sprint, for example, right? So my job would be to say, well, if we have something that's really important and can't wait two weeks, then our next cycle can be a, a one-week sprint rather than a two-week sprint, for example, right? The idea is how to make sure that the team can work in a flow state without the constant interruptions, for example. Mm -hmm. Another concept that I'm learning is about protecting the team from itself, too. So <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> So protecting the team from itself means when people have the best of intentions and they unwittingly overpromise. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. So that that happens quite frequently I found with some teams. I'm more used to the under-promising teams where they say, oh, this is going to take 10 weeks, for example, right? Rather than the over-promising team, which say, oh, this is easy. No we can deal. do this in two weeks. Exactly. And then it takes them six. Yes. And so I've, I've come to discover here, actually, that when people have a very strong sense of the work that they can do. And actually, I think there's a study on this, and I'll try to find it for you. It's a Dunbar effect? I can't remember, but I'll, I'll try to find it. It's when, when we, and we all do this, um, we overemphasize or we have an overconfidence on our abilities to get something done because we think we're experts at something, for example. And so, mm. but then when we start digging into it, we actually see, oh, it's, it's a little bit more complex than I expected. Or, you know, I actually, oh, I have less time to focus on it than I thought I did. 
And so there's this sort of separation of the individual between what you think you can do and what you can actually do, given all of the constraints that are part of your system, for example. Right. So, so I might not factor in all the things that are going on when I give an estimate or I, I might think that I know the system 100%, but I really only know it's 70%. Right. Or, you know, for sure, um, like if you had three hours to focus on something per day, uninterrupted, you could get it done in two weeks. That's a utopian workspace. <laughs> where, where is that? For most people, right? <laughs> and it's not how things are done usually. I mean, I, I think I've heard only of two or three different workplaces that have implemented the deep work ab- approach, which is to say, from this time to this time, whatever email you send, whatever Slack message you send, you're not going to get a response until, you know, X time in the afternoon, for example. So every Wednesday morning, we're going to have deep work time. And during every Wednesday morning, if it's a production issue, then this is the person that you go to. But the rest of the team is not available for questions or interruptions or anything. Then that is such an incredibly freeing experience of being able to focus on something, having managed the expectations of everybody else so they're not waiting on you, thinking that you're not responding. And it's so much harder to do in in an environment where your phone is notifying about you about an app or somebody's next to you and they're like, hey, can you help yeah. me with this? I can't figure out this section. Can you help me? Exactly. Right. So some, some workspaces have figured out a way to make sure that the team is also protected from external um, dis- distractions, but also from itself if you're sitting on a separate pod, for example. Because I, I believe no matter how much of an extrovert you are, sometimes... And I say you because I am definitely not an extrovert. <laughs> you might not be, but for the general okay. you, uh, there is a lot of benefit to having some quiet time trying to work through something in balance with some, you know, conversations with other people. Right, and interacting and yes. building with each other. And- Absolutely. So that's where the term protection comes from, right? Which is sort of saying, well, what are the external entities that may interrupt the team's flow? What are the internal um, factors within the team that may also interrupt their flow unwittingly, right? Right. And I think I've seen firsthand that one that a lot of organizations have a difficult time letting themselves do that because it's always very tempting to to tell people, you must be available within 20 minutes always. But uh, that's one thing I really appreciate here at Points is that if you don't get a reply on Slack in 10 minutes, no one freaks out. It's okay. And it allows me to focus for more peri- longer than before. Whereas at, at a previous place that I've worked, if I, I needed to be on top of my emails and my Slack, and if I missed a notification, it was on me. Right. Yeah. So here it's, it is a bit different. And it's definitely very important as well for you as an individual to be able to speak up and say, hey, I need some quiet time for an hour or two hours. And you can start small, right? So, you know, right. to, to be able to say, I'm going to go book a room for an hour just for myself and I'm going to let my team know that I'm not available for an hour. And even my manager um, at, the, at the time when I first started said, please make sure that you book an hour to yourself every week so that it's your time to go and learn more about something or dig into something deeper. And if you don't, then I would find my calendar be inundated with meetings across different teams and different people and different um, initiatives. Whereas booking that hour for myself once a week was a great first step in making sure that I had the right time to to give myself that sanity to tackle the rest of the week, essentially. Right, and somebody 
gave you permission before you let yourself do this. Exactly. Yeah. For me, it's been very tempting often to say, I'm pretty sure I need an hour or an hour and a half, but I, it doesn't seem right or fair. There's always some reason that I've come up with to say, no, I should make sure I'm available to the team. I can just do this. I'll probably get quiet time mm. rather than actually putting up that pen saying like, no, from here to here, this yes. is my time. Yes. And defending that, right? That's right. Yes. Giving myself that permission and that yes. authority to say, no, this is the time. Yes. And this is, and this is why it matters. And this is why it's important. And ideally your manager or your team will understand that too, because they want what's best for you. <laughs> right. And at the end of the day, it's work time. It's not like I'm on Facebook for that hour. Right. It's, it's productive time. Yes. And po sometimes the most productive time of the whole day yes. is that hour. Exactly. So Anna, let's talk about, you, you've been part of a number of organizations and groups here in Toronto, and you've done a lot of volunteering. T tell me th some of the communities you're, you're involved in, what you've done. Sure. So there's, uh, there's definitely a sense of connection to the Latin community here. So I'm part of the Hispano tech community. I'm going to become uh, more involved in that as well because I'm I'm really looking forward to having uh, any sort of participation within their mentoring program. I found that having mentors and being sponsored is one of the main things that drives success in your career. Really, <laughs> it's not. So it's it's one of those things where I'm I'm trying to expand my my network in that sense. Uh, then there's also the Lamba, so Lamba Latin American MBA Association as well. And then, and what's that about? So that's about different people from Latin America coming together to talk about different subjects around the business world or technology world. So Hispanotech is more geared towards tech and Lamba is more geared towards business. And it's where you, you find how can you expand your network within Toronto because applying to a job through a job board is not the way you're usually going to get a job. <laughs> So yep. instead of waiting until you need a job and you're reaching out to your community, it's how are you proactive around building and expanding that. And not only for yourself, but also for other people. So I find it's extremely helpful to know, oh, I have this friend who's looking for this. And I know this other friend who's also looking for somebody who can fill that role. Can I connect them? So connecting people when you're part of different communities is extremely helpful to understand, well, what are the needs of one community that can help the other community as well? And that would be Hispanotech, Lamba, there's Mujer as well, which translate to women. And that one is related to programs around the Latin culture, nothing to do with technology or software, but more around how do you help the community get a sense of pride and, and ownership and mm. what it means to be Latin. And how do we rewrite what we've been taught in schools around our background so that our children can grow up in a way that they're proud to be Hispanic. Then there's also, I'm a co-founder for Women in Lean and Agile. And that one is, is around bringing together women, going back to our earlier discussion around having separate events related to Scrum Masters or product owners or product managers and the dev community. Even within the dev community, there's so many different meetups that are divided yeah. there oh, too. <laughs> 
So Women in Lean and Agile is aimed towards designers, product managers, scrum masters, devs, architects, anybody who works within the Lean and Agile community to come together and be part of a conversation with people who you normally wouldn't talk with outside of your own team in your company, for example. Yeah. And that group is evolving. So we're, we're starting to think about different ways to drive change within the community. So not to follow the regular meetup format, you know, where, where you go to a meetup, you hear a speaker, then you have some time to network, and then maybe there's an activity and then you leave. And what did yep. you really gain from that, right? We're trying to change that so that you're, you can actually go to a meetup and it's, it's more about creating deep connections between individuals and deeper conversations and applying some of that knowledge and coming back to the group with what you've learned from that and how can we make that better and that's where the agile approach comes in to say well let's have this loops of continuous improvement let's tackle an area that could be an initiative for example yeah. right and and let's learn more about it and work towards having more knowledge and applying that towards our career professionally with the support group to make that happen right. it should be no surprise to me that an agile meetup is iterative <laughs> <laughs> exactly and you'd be surprised how many are not even though there's so many agile meetups here and and that's something that's really great when i when i was able to go to germany and and somebody was like well maybe you should have like you know we we usually have drinks every month or so and we talk about agile it's like oh yeah we have an agile drinks meetup in in toronto which we do mm -hmm. right and so there's so many different meetups here related to so many different topics whether it's your your cultural background uh, your professional role or the type of approach that you take to build software yeah i want to talk a little bit more about the that agile meetup the one that you founded so, How often does it meet and where is it? Yeah, so for that one, we've had, and I think that's interesting when, when you were talking about your initial um, beginning with, with the podcast. For us, it's all in the first events. And so our first events um, were every two months. And at this point, our next one, we're hoping to have one in September. So it's actually oh. going to be... Yeah, so we're, we're stepping back into the data or the feedback that we got from everybody during our first three meetups where different audiences have different needs. And so we're trying to figure out what's the best way for us to create an enriching experience across different audiences and how do we tackle that? So we're creating our own sort of internal study groups to figure out how do we then create an experience or a framework where we can have different groups of people come through a subject, go back and apply it? Where I don't know if you've noticed, um, now most training programs, instead of saying go to a training room for two days and then come back, they're saying let's have a four-week program where you come for an hour or two, we talk about a, a concept, and then you go back and try to apply that. So we're trying to see how can we use that approach so that it's not a one-and-a-half-hour meetup, and then how do we bring together all of that knowledge to have something in the lines of a quarterly meetup where all the different groups come together and they share that knowledge with each other. Oh, I gotcha. So it's almost yeah. like little projects or little case studies. And then you have one big sharing of, of everything that's happened. Exactly. And that makes a lot of sense from an agile perspective because you're not going in and learning math or memorizing a concept. You're training yourself in, in the structure of helping people communicate and communicating yourself and all these different things that you've talked about. Exactly. So that's not something you can learn by 
five hours at a time tight in a classroom and then you walk away and you got it. Right, no. There's so many different concepts that you have to read about it, go back and apply it, and then come back and discuss with a, with a group and then go back and iterate on that. So what, what somebody can do today if they're interested, and this is open to men and women, it's um, go to meetup.com and then women in lean and agile and or go to my profile and then yeah. you can you can we'll find link the link it. there. Yeah. And it's essentially something to keep an eye out for September. We're hoping to have a a program in place that we can we can share with the wider community and start to create that different um, network of people as well. And now you've mentioned a, a ton of different books already on this podcast episode. <laughs> I know you read feverishly. Uh, yes. I have you on Goodreads so I can see often <laughs> the books coming by. I'm thinking of taking a sabbatical from reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is there any you haven't mentioned yet that you'd really like to plug that really made an impact on you in your life? Hmm, That's a very good question. It's it's very hard for me to think of of one book or and and I hate this because that's the thing that I always think about when I read something or when I listen to a podcast or the Tim Ferriss books where he goes through these interviews and he asks about the one book and you know the one the one book that actually comes to mind I think not related to agile per se but that really made an impact it's um, Victor Frankl's the meaning of life. Hmm. It's man's search for meaning, essentially. And he talks about logotherapy. And seeing what I really gained from this book is that it's it's all about the meaning that you find in, in what you do. And so what really drove my interest in, in Agile was finding that that meaning and I had found that meaning when it's not just about going to an office and going through your emails and responding to everything and then doing your job but understanding that what's the meaning behind what I'm doing right so it's not just a checklist of things it's it's something much bigger than that much more deep yes and that's something that I'm still striving for in any role, in any project, in any meeting, in any conversation, it's what is the meaning of this? How is this helping? What What is the outcome that you're looking? Why does this matter? So whenever I, I find myself in a, in a situation where I'm not so sure if I should keep doing it or not, I have to go back to that. Well, what is the meaning of this? Why, why am, why am I, I here doing... in the first place? Exactly. Exactly. It's not just because it's expected or because somebody told me to do it. So always questioning myself as well. And, and that, that's an incredible read. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right. Well, and if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. Uh, I am definitely much, much better at that than email. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. And we'll have a list of all the meetups that you're a part of or planning to attend in the near future so if people want to find you that way definitely and it will be there in person yes <laughs> and you can ask more questions or clarify or you know kind of help me understand something that i may not know a lot about <laughs> that we we can dive deeper into as well yeah and i thanks so much for being here thank you so much sergio this was great Thank you, Anna, for being on the podcast. Do you have an idea for a future episode? 
Let us know what you'd like to hear at torontotechpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at TOTechPodcast. As always, we close with music from a local Toronto band. This is Nudie by Shy Kid. Shy Kid.